Hi, I'm Lou Eisen, boxing uh, writer, author, historian, and this is Ring Talk. And today we're going to discuss part two of the mob of boxing, the mob's influence in boxing, and we're calling this episode They Murdered Boxing. That's the name of a series of six articles written by the magnificent Dan Parker, who was the most consistently brilliant sports writer, I think, of the 20th century. And he, he, uh, he stood up to them. He stood up to the mob from the 30s and 40s on. He wrote for the New York Daily News. Parker was 6'4", 275, stormed the beaches at Normandy at Omaha Beach. So when two mobsters came to his house to intimidate him, he answered the door with an M1 carbine and, you know, beat the hell out of them. So this was a guy that uh, was not going to be intimidated. And he laid out all of it from beginning to end, how the mob brutalized uh, managers, boxers, family of managers and boxers, trainers, promoters. And this in time led to um, uh, indictments and convictions and jail time for Frankie Carbo, who was who ran boxing then for the Lucchese crime family in New York, and his cohort, Blinky uh, Palermo. Both were vicious, vile, evil works of garbage and putting them in prison was too good for them but that's what the law allowed um frankie carbo was um first came to new york to united states from agrigento italy in the early 1900s and i guess he he was about 10 when he got here and his uh father um Angelo Carbo and his mother Clementinia uh, loved him. They were hardworking and they came to the United States looking for riches, but all they found was, you know, more misery. Um, they came here for economic opportunity, but his father ended up working long hours for short money. He was a day laborer, he was illiterate, so his job prospects were minimal, and he died at the age of 54 in 1931 from tuberculosis. And by that time, Frankie Carbo was already a member of murder incorporated in fact he was so good at it he he was put on retainer he did specialized hits in other words if you were going to hit a politician someone who was important or a very well-known mob boss carbo was the guy you wanted because he could do it well do it quickly and get in get out and not get seen and that's why he was one of the very few killers kept on retainer um he took over from only madden now when, when people look at Carbo's sphere of influence, they'll say, well, late 40s, early, you know, through the 50s. But if you research it, he actually started much earlier because because of um, uh, Oni Madden's uh, continually being hassled by uh, state, federal police and the FBI. He left New York in 1935 and moved to Hot Springs, Arkansas. He still got money monthly from the mob for his various rackets especially boxing and he set up the blueprint and how to how to um exploit boxing and essentially what madden did was he said you know you take a large percentage from the manager you take a large percentage from both fighters you take a lot of money from the gross gate receipts and you fix the fights and then you bet on the fights after you fix them on obviously you don't bet because betting implies risk. So the mob would never put their money in a risky adventure. So what the mob did was they would bet on who they knew would win the fight and then they'd rip off the bookies. So the fans got ripped off, the fighters got ripped off, the promoters got ripped off, the managers, the trainers, and later, you know, radio people got ripped off who invested money into these fights. And also television um, sponsors got ripped off later on. So it, 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 and Madden, what Madden would do was he would say to his cohorts, some of the fights should be on the level, right? We have, we have to have some fights that are on the level. We don't want to lose every fan in the sport. So some fights would be on the level. And another reason some fights are on the level is because there was a lot of competition between mobsters to see who was smart enough to have chosen the better fighter. So they would let them fight on the level and see who won. But a lot of times they were fixed. And this mob control of boxing and certain fighters didn't end when a fighter's career retired. Ash Resnick, who was a mobster from New York from the 40s, who was 
the main handler of Sonny Liston, he used Joe Lewis in the 60s and 70s, but mostly the 60s, to collect mob debts in Vegas. He'd take Joe Lewis along. So, I mean, it's so sad to hear, but, um, you know, they they controlled Lewis. They took money from Lewis. You know, they 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 shot Lewis full of heroin and got him addicted to that. So they did. I mean, this to me is like tampering with God. I mean, Lewis was the greatest fighting machine that ever lived. And to treat him that way was just despicable, beyond despicable. So Oni Madden uh, emigrated with his parents to the United States. And in school, of course, he was your typical bully. He wasn't physically big, but that didn't mean that much. He picked on all the other kids. He associated with bullies that were four or five years older than him. And, you know, it was just a living hell for other kids who didn't have the gumption or the wherewithal to fight back. You know, lunch was hell. Uh, recess was hell. Going to and coming from school, he'd take their food, their money, everything. If he wanted a coat, he'd take it. And his parents were frantic because there's nothing they could do to stop him. And, you know, they, they went to the courts when he got caught and they said, there's nothing we can do. And they put him in juvenile detention and all that did was teach him how to be a better criminal. So when he got out, he graduated from schoolyards and he went to uh, street, street push peddlers, you know, guys in the street would be pushing carts full of groceries and different foods. And he'd shake them down, you know, he'd just steal their stuff or he'd say, if you don't want someone hurting you, uh, pay me this much. And these guys were making nothing anyways. And then he graduated on to different uh, other protection rackets. And one of them was uh, cab drivers. So he'd go to different cab drivers and say, if you don't want to be robbed or hurt, then pay me and I'll offer you protection. And this was New York. And one of the cab drivers, you know, told him to take his protection racket and shove it up his ass. And the thing about Oni Manor was he was a psychopath, a genuine psychopath. Path. And he was entirely devoid of empathy or morals. So this was not how you talk to him. He was he he did not take kindly to such rude comments, or to, he didn't take kindly to anyone disagreeing with him. And this guy brought along cab driver, a man named Albert Weber, who was essentially muscle and a huge guy. And the guy put his hands on Carbo and shoved him. And Carbo just calmly took out a gun and put it to the guy's head and blew his head off. And this is a pattern in the mob for well over 140 years. You know, people look at Jimmy Hoffa and they say, well, Hoffa was killed because he threatened the mob uh, with going to the newspaper to tell them about how the mob had helped him, which was already well known anyways. But really, Jimmy Hoffa was killed because he, because in prison, he put his, he got into a fight with Tony Pro Provenzano, when Provenzano said, we're going to get you out. He was a mobster and a, a big time mobster, and, but you just won't run the Teamsters. And Hoffa was so angry, physically accosted Provenzano. You don't put your hands on a made guy. That's his sure ticket, quick ticket to the boneyard. And that's what happened. He put his hands on Provenzano. On that point, he was a dead man. Now, getting back to Carbo. Uh, Carbo said, this guy grabbed me and shoved me first, and he did. And Carbo was sentenced to four years for manslaughter and was out in 18 months, thanks to his lawyers and the fact that they greased different officials. This is what the mob could do. The mob could say to different judges and parole board members and officials, uh, we'd like to get him out sooner. Well, we can't. He did this. Well, what if I give you $100,000 in cash? you never have to declare it. No one will ever know where it came from. So it's hard for different officials to turn that down. These are guys making three, four, five grand a year, eight grand a year. And they'll be offered a hundred grand in cash that you'll never have to declare or, or declare to the IRS or to anyone. It's hard to turn that down. And all they want you to do is let someone out like Carbo, who's eventually going to get out anyways. You can't stop them all. I mean, it's wrong what they did, but they did it. And Carbo gets out, and he moved into the vacuum that Oni Madden had created uh, much sooner than people realized, into the in the late 1930s. And you know, at 
this point, it's the reign of Joe Lewis. And of course, Jimmy the Boy Bandit Johnson was gone. Uh, Mike Jacobs, Uncle Mike, was formerly uh, ensconced in, in the uh, Madison Square Garden as the promoter of the 20th Century Sporting Club, along with his brother-in-law, Saul Strauss. And Madden exercised influence over certain fighters and helped them get title shots. And he was doing this in every weight division. Also, the fact that Julian Black and John Roxborough were, were Joe Lewis's managers and were also criminals, part of the African-American underworld, which would have been necessary. Otherwise, Lewis never would have got a chance at the big time. And, you know, they were doing business with Mike Jacobs. And uh, Lewis was also exploited by the mob, especially when uh, Jacobs got ill and had a heart attack or stroke, excuse me in the uh, middle to late 40s, and then Carvel saw his chance to move in and take over completely, which is what he did. And he got rid of the 20th Century Sporting Club and formed the International Boxing Club with James D. Norris, who was the owner of the Chicago Blackhawks, owned part of the Detroit Red Wings, owned the Olympia Stadium in Detroit, owned the stadium in which the hockey arena went to Blackhawks played, owned a piece of a lot of hockey teams. But he loved hanging out with gangsters. That was his thing. And so you could always see him with Carbo. And he also owned racehorses and Palermo and other people. And from 35 to 45, the mob, you know, had tremendous control. And it went way beyond that, too, uh, over boxing. So in, in uh, you know, you have Dempsey, then you have Gene Tunney. Tunney retires, and then you have a tournament see who wins and Jack Sharkey is beating Matt Schmeling, hits him low and Schmeling's considered a winner. For the first time, a guy wins the title after he's been fouled and knocked out. And then they have the rematch, which Schmeling actually won, but they gave it to Sharkey and Sharkey holds the title and he loses it to Primo Carnero. Primo Carnero was the case in point. Um, for for professional boxing as the most hard luck case ever. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, Carnera was the focus of the movie, The Harder They Fall, written by Bud Schulberg. And done in 57, it was Humphrey Bogart's last movie. And I met Bud Schulberg and spoke to him for quite a long time. Angelo Dundee introduced us on the set of Cinderella Man. He'd come up to see Angelo. And he told me some wonderful stories. First of all, this is this is a mind blowing story. Bud Schober, who was in his 90s when I spoke to him, I think 93, 94 in 2004, he was sitting in fourth row, um, 1919, July 4th, in Toledo, Ohio, when Jack Dempsey knocked out um, Jess Swillard for the World Heavyweight title. He was sitting with his father, uh, B.P. Schoberg, who was the president of Paramount Films. And... I asked him about a lot of things about Dempsey. They said his gloves were loaded. He said, not Dempsey's gloves weren't loaded. There's photos you can get. And he showed me where to get them, which I did. There's photos you can get of Dempsey entered a ring with his hands wrapped. He also said, Walter Moynihan, who was, who was the trainer for Jess Willard, was in the dressing room, which you would do, which you still do, of Jack Dempsey when he got his hands wrapped. And he signed off on them. He said, no, they're kosher. There's nothing added to them. No plaster of Paris. Doc Kearns claimed that years later. And he claimed it years later because he was a rogue and he'd spent a lot of his money and Dempsey's money. And whenever he needed money, he would peddle these fictions to different magazines like Sports Illustrated in order to get some money. But what, But Kearns inherently understood how the mob controlled boxing. And he also understood how to get along with them and get his fighters, weave them through that intricate mob minefield to world titles, which he did with, you know, Mickey Walker and Jack Dempsey and Archie Moore. Archie Moore is a hard luck case because Archie Moore was the best light heavyweight in the world. And at that time still waited 12 years to get a world shot, title shot at Joey Maxim. And he won. Still had to beat Maxim several more times before they actually let him go. And beating Maxim was one thing, but getting Maxim's manager, Jack Kearns, was great because more steadfastly refused to do business with the mob. He knew what happened when he did business with the mob. He knew from looking at Henry Armstrong, look what the mob did to him. He, Armstrong had hundreds of fights, was uh, simultaneously a three-time, three-division world champion, and ended up broke. 
And this is what the mob did with all fighters. That's the one thing all fighters dealing with the mob uh, had in common. They ended up broke, uh, uh, pugilistic, dementia, and indigent. In other words, homeless. Now, guys that did business with the mob, fighters, managers, didn't do it voluntarily. They had no choice. These guys come to you. You know, they tell you what's going to happen. There's 20 guys standing behind you. And you know there's hundreds more. So you're going to do what they say or they'll kill you. As I said last week, the mob never made any idle threats. If the mob said they were going to kill you, they'd kill you. And most of the times they wouldn't say. And one of the mob's favorite tricks, and I said this last week with regards to the 1919 World Series, the Chicago uh, Black Sox, was the fact that they would, if, if you were the fighter, they wanted to go down. And, and they did this to the Black Sox players. But if they said to you, I know you're the champ, but you're going to go down in the fifth round to our fighter, and the champ would say, well, that guy's a bum. That guy's got 15 wins and 13 losses. And and they would say, okay, 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 champ. Here's a photograph of your wife. Here's a photograph of your daughter at school. Here's a photograph of your son with his friends. And they would just do that. In other words, we know where your family is. We know where your parents are, your sister your sister's kids. In other words, we can kill you anytime and your family anytime we want. And there's virtually nothing you can do about it. What are you going to do? You're going to go to the police. The police are bought off by them. You're going to go to government officials. They're bought off by the mob. There's virtually nothing you can do. You can either play ball with them and do what they want, or you can get another profession, which was probably the best thing you could do. But these guys didn't have other skills. This was during the Depression, right after and during World War II. And a lot of times it was difficult to get into other professions. It was almost impossible. So, and this was a chosen profession of a lot of people. So it, it was very difficult for these people to find another way to make money. And with the mob, it, it wasn't just saying you have to go down. If you go down, we'll give you 80 grand for the fight. That wasn't the point of losing on purpose. The point was they never lived up to the money they were going to pay you. You were promised 80 grand. You'd be lucky to get two or three grand. If you complain, you get a pistol whipping. If you complained again, you die. So the mob just treated everyone like garbage. They looked at it as their personal fiefdom. Why did the mob get away with it for so long? Because boxing has no centralized governing body. Each state had a commission. And that made it easier for different mob families in each state to control fighters. So there was really, it was a national syndicate, but the mob in New York could call people they knew from the mob in Los Angeles and have them talk to certain fighters to get them to do certain things and managers. And Carbo essentially controlled it all. So he would go to LA, which ended up being his downfall eventually, or, or Kansas City or Boston or another place. And he would, he, make sure that his rules and his orders were followed. One of the stories about Carbo, this happened in the 50s. Last week I was speaking, I speak a lot to Jimmy Dundee. Jimmy is Angelo Dundee's son. So he he's seven years older than me. I'm 62. So he was close with Muhammad and he knew all these different people that his father and his father didn't deal with, but his uncle Chris had to deal with but somehow circumvented them and still succeeded. That was the main thing about Ali and Angel Dundee and Chris Dundee. They were able to go against the mob without the mob knowing it and doing it in such a subtle way and still have Muhammad succeed. Of course, Muhammad had the nation of Islam and the fruit of Islam um, behind him, which is their security wing. But Carbo would go to uh, different cities, as I said, in different places. And one of the saddest stories Jimmy Dundee said to me, and I know knew it well because I knew the person, was about Ray Arcel. He said, you got to mention the Ray Arcel story in Boston. Ray Arcel was one of the great trainers. He was probably, Doc Bagley was the first modern trainer in boxing in the early 1900s. And he, the person he trained to be a trainer was Ray Arcel. And along with Arcel at that time, early 1900s, was Charlie Goldman. Ray Arcel trained Benny Leonard and Roberto Duran and Larry Holmes. Arcel was one of the all-time great sports trainers and one of the kindest people you'd ever meet. And so what happened was 
because he worked with Freddie Brown and Whitey Bimstein and other trainers, he never made much money. So he had other jobs, you know, during his life to make money to support his wife and kids. And he was living in Boston and he was born in the Midwest, moved to New York, then moved to Boston. And ABC wanted to put on boxing shows at Boston Garden. And they asked him to help. And Arcel said to them, you can't use top-notch elite level fighters because Frankie Carbo controls them and he won't allow you unless he gets all your money, the fighters' money, the managers, all their money. And so you're going to have to use, you know, uh, club fighters, low-level club fighters. And ABC said, fine. It's just, it's a cheap shoot. You know, it's one, two cameras. We just get guys in the ring slugging each other. That's what the fans like, and it won't cost much. And so Arcel had to call Carbo to get clearance, and Carbo found out who the fighters were going to be, and he said, nah, I'm not interested in that garbage. No one's going to watch. Okay. And, and then, you know, within a year, it was getting good ratings. There wasn't really much else at that time to watch on TV in the very early 1950s. And boxing was easy to film. So what happened was, after the ratings, it was in the newspapers that the ratings were going through the roof and they were making money. Carbo called Arcel and said, I want a piece now. And Arcel said, that has nothing to do with me. And, and he said, that's everything to do with you. You book it. No, I, I don't book it. They have their own bookers. And uh, all I do is when they mention a fighter's name, I look it up and I call around. And I make sure that he's a legitimate fighter, whether he's good or not, doesn't matter. I just make sure he's got a, a legitimate boxing license. And Carbo said, I don't care what you do. I want, I want 75, 80% of what ABC is getting. And he said, Arcel said, Frankie, you can't shake down a TV network. They're not going to give you 75. Well, then I want 75, 80% of what the boxers are getting. They're getting a couple grand to fight, if that. Is it really worth that much? Well, I want what the promoters and managers are getting. Some of the, he said some of the managers aren't even taking a fee because the money their boxers are getting is so little. They're doing it for the TV exposure. And, and Carvel just said, why are you arguing? Why are you talking like this to me? I, I am boxing. I run boxing. I told you what I want. Otherwise, if you can't do that, then stop the broadcast immediately. And Arcel said, I don't have that power to tell a network to stop broadcasting boxing or any show and he said and you're giving me much more credit here for for my involvement my involvement was more before but now because of my day job it's practically nothing i just here's a fighter's name you know joe blow i i, I call around is he a legitimate fighter yes we gave him a license and okay he's legitimate and then they use them. And that's all I do. He said, well, you're going to stop doing that then. And I want the money you're getting for that. And he said, but the money I'm getting has gone down by 75%. I used to be involved a lot more. Now I'm getting very little, if any money. It's basically, you know, go out and eat, take my wife out to dinner money once a week. And he said, that money goes to me now. Marcel said, I can't help you. This is a very, very small time organization. And, and, operation and Carbo hung up which was ominous and a week or so later um rare cells leaving the boston garden and he gets hit in the head the guy walks up behind him hits him in the head with a lead pipe fractures his skull puts him in the hospital and mob says you're no longer involved in boxing in any way shape or form and you have to write a letter uh, put it in the newspaper, which he did, saying that he's permanently retired from boxing in every capacity. And he did that. And eventually ABC just dropped their boxing in Boston because they would want to deal with Frankie Carbo and the mob. And that was one instance of, of Carbo really overplaying his hand because Arcel was loved not only by people in the sport, but by, by many of the newspaper men. So, especially Dan Parker. So it was... It was something they never should have done, but they did it. And this was the 1950s, 52, 53. The next fighter that Arcel worked with was Roberto Duran, and that was in 72, 73. And Carlos Salida, the manager of Roberto Duran, had to call around and make sure Carbo and all these other people were no longer involved. Carbo was alive then, but he died in 76. 
and he was let out of prison early for he died in florida he was let out of prison early for health reasons and there was a point when he was in prison where representatives of the Lucchese family came to him and said, you're not, you're out of it. Because he did run it in prison. Uh, he ran boxing and he was able to get things going. But finally, the, the Lucchese family met and they just said, it's not worth it anymore. He gets, he's too notorious. He gets too much bad publicity. It's costing us money. Let's get rid of him. And they said, well, and getting rid of a mob guy in prison is easy because the prison is run by the mob. So they just said, you know what, if we kill him in prison, it'll be another big story. Just tell him he's not involved and we'll take it over. And then, you know, Don King became the man to help run it. So Carbo at that point was was gone, but we're, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. So in the 40s, there's fighters in every division and, and you have guys like Oni Madden, uh, as I mentioned earlier, who helped uh, uh, Henry Armstrong win three world championships, featherweight, lightweight, welterweight, because people wouldn't, people weren't, he wasn't drawing anyone. He was a great fighter, but he wasn't drawing anyone. anyone. And his management was Eddie Mead. That was his manager, who was also a mob appointed manager. And Eddie Mead, uh, fat Eddie Mead, was very close friends of Oni Madden. And I have a wonderful picture of Oni Madden, Eddie Mead, and Henry Armstrong in a boat in Arkansas, you know, going, uh, 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 I don't know, on a pleasure cruise or going, or about to go fishing. And the interesting thing, of course, was this is Arkansas. So this was a very racist state, but Oni Madden was, was, was the mob boss and no one was gonna tell him he couldn't have a black man and his wife on his boat. Anyone who spoke back like that to Oni Madden was immediately killed. So as I said, Madden's gone, he's in Arkansas, Carbo's taking over. Mike Jacobs is there, and they have, at that point, you've, you've had Primo Carnera. Carnera lost the title to Max Bear, and people keep saying, how did Carnera lose the title to Max Bear? It, it doesn't make sense. And, well, it does make sense, because the mob owned a piece of Max Bear, too. The mob would never allow one of their fighters to lose a title on the level unless they controlled a lot of the other fighter. The only time uh, that happened was uh, when Ali fought Liston the first time, and they presumed they could easily muscle in on Ali because Ali was managed by the Louisville Seven, his white sponsors in Louisville. But he had switched by that time to to the Nation of Islam, and they stood up to the mob, and that had never happened before. So and the mob wasn't prepared because the mob wasn't used to people standing up to them. So, you know, we have Henry Armstrong, and then we have Lou. You know, we have all these other great fighters that that whose management, you know, uh, went back to the mob. The mob would get you, and and they would get your manager, and they would tell your manager, you know, we're taking over. And then weeks later, they'd say to the manager, "What are you doing here?" This happened to the great Bill Miller. Bill Miller is one of the great trainers of all time. He trained James Tony, and he also had Johnny Saxton and. Uh, the bomb said, we want him, we'll take him. And uh, they said to Bill Miller, we'll give you 10 grand for him. And Miller took it because he knew if he didn't take it, he would have lost his fighter for nothing anyways. Miller was a brilliant trainer, but he was a brilliant man. And he knew how to circumvent the mob and train fighters without having to deal with them. This was probably uh, a skill perfected by Chris Dundee. When Chris Dundee promoted and managed, he'd have various fighters. And the mob would say to him, Carver would say, uh, Chris, your fighter's got to take a dive in that fight in a month, and he's going to go down in the fifth round. And then he's thinking, my guy's 30 and 0 with 28 knockouts. Your guy's, you know, 8 and 1 with no knockouts. It's, but he's not going to argue. You didn't argue. You got a beating if you argued. So he'd say, jerk. He didn't even look up. You know, just be writing something or typing something. And he'd go, jerk. And what would happen is, Dundee was smart. He, Chris would go to his to the gym, and this would be February, and he'd say to the fighter, you finished your workout? Yeah, well, go take a jog in your trunks around the block. Well, I can't. It's February. I'll freeze to death. Just do it once. Why? Just do it like I told you. And he did. And the fighter would get a fever and get the flu, and he'd have to cancel the fight. And so Dundee had saved him. He had saved him from having to go down. Had another fighter said, I hate to tell you this, but your wife called, said she's leaving you for this guy. 
and the fighter got angry and punched a locker and then broke one of his fingers. And then later on, Dundee said, I made it up to save you and, you know, have to tell Carbo, yeah, he broke his hand uh, while sparring and he can't fight. And so this was the way Chris would use these different ruses um, to get around the mob, forcing his fighters to take a dive. And when they had the Kafafra Commission looking into organized crimes involvement in boxing, and that commission was an ongoing committee, it still exists to this day, um, they cleared uh, Chris and Angelo, they said, of any involvement with, with the mob at all, ever. He said they, they were forced, Chris was forced to work with them. Angela hated them. I was terrified of them. And Chris worked with them, but knew how to get around their nefarious schemes. In fact, Chris Dundee used to work with Frankie Carbo and Blinky Palermo on cross-country trains in the late 1930s where they promoted fights. And he said Carbo would sell you, would give away free peanuts that were salty, but charge you a lot of money for lemonade. And when the men would pay, and their wives paid, he would take the men inside and say, next time you pay or you're off. Carbo found it an insult that they would force the women to pay. I mean, that's, you know, bloodthirsty killer with manners. And so this was, this, this was something he was involved with with them. And, you know, they gradually moved in to take over Oni Madden's uh, vacated spot. And what happened was, they had a meeting in New York and just before Madden left and the Casey family and different families said, listen, Oni, we all share rackets. You know, this was after prohibition had ended. He said, we all have bootlegging organizations, different ones, all of us. We all made money. We all offer murder for hire and protection for hire. We all have gambling and prostitution. We all own linen stores and, and we all own construction companies and we all own unions so we all share that and you should share boxing there's no reason why you should have a hundred percent of it and only man is a smart man he realizes these guys are going to take over anyways they're going to start cutting into it and i don't want to get into a fight with other mob families even though only madden had frankie frank costello behind him along with mayor lansky and lucky luciano he thought you know fighting amongst each other is just going to make it bad for everyone so he said, sure, you can have whatever. You can have this part and this part. And he probably ceded 25% of it to them. And of course, as he's exiled in Hot Springs, they're gradually moving in, chipping away at how much he runs. Madden's still making good money, but Carbo still keeps adding more fighters and more managers. And the list of managers and fighters he had was just incredible because you look at it and I made a list the other day of managers that were involved in uh, boxing who were who were also involved with the mob. And it went for pages and pages and pages and pages. And there's a wonderful photo. I don't know if I have the book here with me. It's somewhere. It's, it's Angelo Dundee's book. And it's called uh, My View from the Corner. And it was written with his son, Chris Dundee and Bert Sugar. And there's a wonderful photo um, of thousands of people in it from the International Managers Guild. And you had to belong to that. And if your manager didn't belong to it, you didn't get a fight. And all these managers were guys that were knuckling under to the mob or were actually mob guys themselves. And you look at this photo and it's just all these in blinky plamos in it at the back. And it's a who's who of organized crime. Uh, Jimmy Dundee has an act, the actual photo at home, but Angelo filled in every name of the thousands there. So yeah, you had Jack Dempsey there, you know, some stars there, but you also had guys like Gaspipe Vokala, who, who, who was a well-known mob killer, but also acted as a manager. And, you know, what are you going to say to a guy like that when he says, my fighter wins his fight? I didn't agree to that. Doesn't matter what you agreed to. This is the way it goes down. And so this is what happened. And all these criminals, Eddie Coco, who was a mob boss, is in there. And uh, all these different guys. I mean, the list is just endless. You had di you had different murders, too, within that, that, that mob contingent that controlled boxing. You know, if Carbo, for instance, was, was um, 
uh, fought to and arrested for killing a guy named Duffy and William Duffy in uh, in um, Atlantic City, uh, who was a major bootlegger who was also moving in on Boo Boo Hoff and Waxy Gordon and other guys. And Hoff was from Philly and this guy Duffy declared war on the Italian mobsters. He was Irish and they said it was Carbo that went in and killed him. Although Carbo said, I'm a bus driver and I was having a medical exam at that time. Now he was he was telling the truth and lying. He wasn't a bus driver, but he was having a medical exam. We still don't know who did it. It was thought that there were several other two Jewish mobsters from New York were sent or from Philadelphia who went in and killed this guy. But it, but but Carbo took credit for it. Carbo also, when you saw the movie Bugsy, Elliot Gould's character Harry Big Greeny Greenberg was killed, and he was killed by by Carbo Siegel, who Ben Siegel, who was a Cold Stone killer was supposed to be the guy killing him and and Alec TikTok Tenenbaum from Murder Incorporated, but they were all Murder Incorporated, but it, it was Carbo who was called in. It was a specialized hit, had to, had to be done. And this guy had autism. He didn't know what he was doing when he, when he was ratting on these guys. I wouldn't say ratting, he was testifying. And it wasn't really his fault, but just to make sure they took him out and it was Carbo who did it. Carbo was the one who also killed Ben Siegel. So, Carbo was on retainer. It was one of the very few ever. It was on retainer for Murder Incorporated, used for specialized hits, and and he was good at it. And as as uh, Bud Schoberg told me on the set of Cinderella Man, um, and I believe I mentioned this before, you know, he said, you know, when you're having breakfast in the morning and you're having scrambled eggs and you're reading a newspaper and you're looking at the newspaper, and as you're looking at the newspaper, you spill a bit of eggs on the newspaper. You don't even think about it. You just wipe it off and continue reading. He said, that's what murder was like for Frankie Carbo. You know, just spilling eggs on a newspaper. Meant nothing to him, just a cost of doing business. Didn't bother him at all. He could murder you and go out and have dinner with his friends. You know, not that he had any friends, he just had associates. So Carnero was controlled by Oni Madden. This was the thing about the movie, The Harder They Fall. The Harder They Fall showed uh, Rod Steiger is a guy named Nick Banco, who's supposed to be Frankie Carbo. And they show Her um, Humphrey Bogart, my favorite actor, Humphrey Bogart, you know, as Eddie Willis. And everyone said he was the writer, Jimmy Cannon. He was playing publicist, Harold Conrad. What I said to Bud Schoberg was this didn't make sense to me because Carnero wasn't Carbo's fighter. Carnero was only Madden's fighter. He said, right, but I wanted to show them mob exploitation and who was in control at that time, meaning the 1950s when the movie was made. And he said, people often think Carbo didn't get involved until the 40s and 50s. He was there in the 30s as well. So Carbo controlled all these different fighters in different weight divisions. He controlled their management. He got a piece of everything. And he was just so greedy that eventually it became it became too much and sponsors started to drop off in radio and later on in TV and clubs started to close and people started to not watch boxing. You can only insult fans intelligence so much when they watch a fighter like Carmen Basilio beat Johnny Saxton for 15 rounds and pummel him and then lose the decision in Chicago where the judges were paid off to give it to Saxton. What can you do at that point? I mean, fans just say, well, that's it. We're not coming back. And that's when Chris Dundee was saying to Carbo, it's too much. It's just too much. You're, you're, you're so greedy that there's going to be no audience. And with no audience and no sponsors, you know, you have no sport. There's no way to make money. The, the way, the thing you want to do is to keep making money. And Chris Dundee was smart because he moved to Florida with Angelo in 1952 from New York. They're originally from Philadelphia. And he knew that all Carver was interested in was money. Couldn't care less about the fights or the fighters or the managers or especially the fans. So Frank, uh, Chris Dundee made a great deal, Frankie Carver. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you an envelope. I'm going to give you five points or whatever it was, five points or 15 points every month, whether I put a fight on or not. So if I have three months in a row, I, and Chris also uh, promoted wrestling. So if he had five, three or four months in a row, he promoted neither wrestling or boxing.
Garbo still got money. And Angela had to do the same. And they kept giving him money every single month. And in return, Garbo left them alone. Now, this is why this leads to one of the most iconic moments in all of professional boxing. There's a film I have, and I'm going to, I'm, um, I'm going to get to Eric so he can play it next time. Uh, it's a film of Angelo Dundee and Jack Nyland, who was a Philadelphia mobster along with his brothers. Nyland controlled Sonny Liston. And Nyland in this film you see is, is at the Florida Boxing Commission office with Angelo Dundee and Chris Dundee. And Chris loved his baby brother Angelo and looked out for him. Chris was a tough guy. And... Jack says, I demand to know who the referee is. In other words, what he's really saying is you have to look at the subtext. What he's really saying is I want to know who the referee is so my guys can get to him and influence him. This is 1964. Carbo's still in jail, or he's just starting in jail. He's only been there a couple of years, but he still runs boxing. And boxing commission said, no, we don't do it that way. We only announce it 15 minutes before the fight. Well, my guys aren't going to be happy about that. And then you can hear... Chris Dundee said, my guys don't care what your guys think because my guys run everything. And he was referring to Carbo. In other words, he may be in prison, but he's still in charge. And whoever's running with your guys makes no difference because my guys run the sport. And you're not going to find out who the referee is until 50 minutes before the fight. And, and Angela Dundee says to Jack Nyland, what do you care anyways? Your guy's going to win in, what, 60 seconds? You don't even need a referee. And Manning says, yeah, I'm sorry, you're right. Doesn't matter who the referee is. You're right, I'll tell him. And basically, he'd been outflanked by Chris Dundee. It's, it's Chris saying, I've, you know, I've been in the sport since the 1920s. I've dealt with these guys. I know how to work with these guys. And you don't. And, you know, you're just being used by them. Which Nyman was. Nyman was used by the mob. He was fleeced by the mob. He made very little money from Liston. Liston made almost no money from the mob. And and that's what happened. And and as we know, Ali went on and and beat Liston. So 30s, 40s, uh, today just want to talk about 35 to 45. And 45 Carbos, you know, he's really ensconced. He's really, he's in his glory. And that's when 20th Century Sporting Club is just about to end. Uh, and four years later when Joe Lewis retires and Lewis was paying part of his money uh, to the mob because they'd already, uh, the mob affected every single fighter from Jack Dempsey uh, all the way up to the 1970s, even although we're not going to go that far because it'd be a 50 part series. So for, for our, for our own edification, we're just going to get to the early 1960s, but that's more than enough to show you what the mob the damage and the hurt the mob did to the sport because by the time the 1960s came around even before that in the 1950s uh once once the kafafa commission was going and was investigating organized crime control not only in trucking but in professional boxing and it came out that all these different fights and fighters were controlled by the mob kid gavlan was a mob fighter billy graham beat him for the welterweight title but because graham and his manager Irvin cohen wouldn't excuse me, do business with the mob, they weren't allowed to win. Even though he won the fight, it was given to Sax, it was given to Gavilan, and Gavilan cried when he beat Saxton in Philadelphia, although they gave it to Saxton, because Saxton was a mob fighter. And the thing about Saxton was, he praised Blinky Palermo publicly, which made him hated by other fighters. And he would he said that Gavilan was a poor loser, same as when he got a gift against Basilio. Of course, Basilio knocked him out nine rounds in the next fight, and then the rubber match destroyed him in two rounds. Saxton ended up broke, committing crimes, and ended up in a mental asylum. And he he made no money. And this is what the mob did. They did this to him. They did it to to uh, Dan Buccheroni. They did it to to uh, Coley Wallace. They did it to a lot of fighters. Jimmy Bivens. They did it to a lot of great fighters were were taken on by the mob and and just had all their money stolen. One of the fighters that was helped was Jersey Joe Walcott. He had Felix Bacicchio or Bacicchio as his manager. He was a mob guy and he liked Walcott and he gave him money. He gave him money to help him train properly and was behind him when he won the title. 
he was one of the anomalies. He was one of the guys that, for whatever reason, this mobster liked him and helped him. There are occasions like that where they help different people. But just like in the movie um, The Hustler, where Jackie Gleason says to Paul Newman at the very end, you better pay him, Eddie, about Burke Gordon saying, where's my money? George C. Scott's character. It's happened every day in boxing, where boxers would get threatened and managers and they were deciding what to do. And their friends would say, just just pay him. You're better off paying him. Same thing with Jake LaMotta. LaMotta said to me that not only did he throw the blackjack Billy Fox fight, he'd do it again. Because otherwise, he'd have no shot at getting a, at, um, getting a chance at the world middleweight title held by Marcel Sudan. He said what upset him was when he spoke to New York State Boxing Commission and he claimed he had a ruptured spleen. And so they said he didn't throw the fight. Everyone knew he threw the fight, but LaMotta was angry because he, he wanted to say to the commission, but he wouldn't dare. You guys have mobsters on the commission. You know the mob runs boxing, and yet you're giving the boxers a hard time. Why not just go after the real crooks and clean the sport up? But they couldn't because they've been bought off and they've been threatened. And so he throws the fight against uh, Blackjack Billy Fox. Most of Fox's fights were fixed. And what happens to LaMotta? Does he get a title shot? Yeah, three years later after he paid 25 grand to the mob. He still had to wait. But they, and usually they would never, you know, agreements like that were never fulfilled. But with LaMotta's case, it was fulfilled. So, they, you know, they screwed LaMotta. Uh, Carmen Basilio hated them, never did business with them. But his manager, uh, um, uh, John DeJean and and uh, Joe Nitro, they had to give up 30 to 35 percent of their of their fees, of their managerial fees to Frankie Carbo in order to get Basilio a shot at the welterweight title, which he won. And then they screwed him with Saxton, and then he won that. And then he had to give up. They had to give up more money to get a shot at Ray Robinson. Robinson said he would never do business with the mob, and then re retired from boxing. They still approached him all the time. You know, you you lose the first fight, win the second, third's on the level, and he would say no. He was the biggest draw. He didn't need them all. But then when he went away from boxing for three years in the 1950s, what happened with Robinson was he had all these businesses in Harlem, but his, his relatives took the businesses and ran them into the ground, stole all the money. So he had to join up with James D. Norris and, and do business with the mob. Uh, they made a lot of money off of him. There's no instance that we know of of him throwing any of his fights. People have rumored that Lamada may have thrown the fight from 19 from February 14, 1951. I don't buy that. That fight was on the level. I don't think there's any any conclusive evidence of Ray Robinson ever throwing a fight. But he didn't make as much money as he wanted to make because he had to give it up to the mob for they controlled it and forwarded him to get those fights. He had to give them a percentage. And that's what they did. You're going to take a lot of what the boxer makes, what the manager makes. They're going to take the gross gate receipts. They're going to take the TV money, uh, radio money, uh, everything. So just went on, you know, from 1921 until the late 60s. And it went from Oni Madden to, to um, Frankie Carbo. A lot of people think after Madden left in 35, well, there was this big 5, 10, 15-year gap. And other guys ran it. Madden moved, or Carbo moved into the vacuum right away. He was there ready and waiting. And he had the Lucchese family behind him. He also had Blinky Palermo from, from the Philadelphia mob, who was kicking up money to other mobsters in Philadelphia, like Boo Boo Hoff, and all these other big mobsters, Waxy Gordon in New Jersey, Long, Longy, uh, uh, Zwillman in, in New Jersey, and all these other guys, Lansky, Luciano, their money was getting kicked up to them, so they were providing the muscle for these mobsters to run the sport. People would say, well, Costello wasn't involved, or Lansky, Luciano. They were heavily involved, but they had the money to support and the muscle to help these guys pull off their schemes. Alistair, good to see you. Did the mob have a big effect on Charlie Burley? That's a good question. Charlie Burley, if you don't know, one of the all-time great fighters, and Sugar Ray Robinson was supposed to fight him, but didn't. Uh, Mike Jacobs wouldn't book him into a title fight. Burley fought from welter to middle to light heavy and beat everyone 
Um, I would say the mob did have an effect on him, Alistair, because Burley was out of Pittsburgh and he didn't have enough mob muscle behind him to get those fights. And he wasn't going to do business with them and give up. He's figuring, I'm not getting a title fight. Why would I give up money anyways to, you know, in order to get a title fight? Mike Jacobs wouldn't book him into a title fight. He simply wouldn't do it. And a lot of guys ducked him. And so, and he wasn't the only one. So Holman Williams was another one. So another great black fighter. So these guys... Yes, the mob did have a deleterious effect on Charlie Burley and a lot of other fighters. But Burley is the one that really hurts because Burley was one of the all-time great, brilliant fighters offensively and defensively. And Burley was a guy who had a great career. And when it was over, he said, that's enough. I'm tired of playing this game. I'm not going to keep going on in false promises. I've proved what I can do. You're not going to give me a chance. So I'm done. And, and good on him for that. Burley is remembered because his skill set was so pronounced. Uh, but he didn't have the requisite muscle behind him to help him move him into a title fight. You needed more muscle for that. People say, well, what about George Chevallo? Chevallo fought in Terrell and beat him. Right, but Terrell had the Chicago mob and George Terrell didn't have mob muscle. If Chevallo had had mob muscle behind him, it would have helped him when he fought Floyd Patterson whom he beat but didn't get the decision. And this happened a lot of times. The most famous fight was the third fight between Kid Gavilan and Billy Graham. And Graham easily beat Gavilan, not easily, but he beat Gavilan. But Gavilan got the decision because he had the mob behind him. And before the fight, Irving Cohen said to Carbo that my guy doesn't want to do business with you. No, you know, it's not meant as an insult or anything. He just wants to do it on the level. And Carbo said, that's fine, but he's never going to win the title. And he never did. Uh, Graham was always announced. Billy Graham was the uncrowned World Welterweight Champion. And he was. And he beat Gavilan that night. But he did not get the title because the mob wouldn't allow it. And the mob did more damage to boxing financially and reputation-wise than any other single uh, particular organization. It, it was the ruination of the sport. It's why boxing is now a niche sport rather than one of the two top sports in the in the United States, which were at that time baseball and boxing. I want to thank you for watching. I'm Lou Eisen. This has been Ring Talk and, and for this weekend. And we'll see you again next week. Be well. Speak soon. Bye-bye.